what a privilege we have of hearing seven of our young men <laughs> preach to us the proofs of unconditional salvation. Amen. Let me take a few minutes and introduce the topic to you, and then I'll introduce the seven young men. There are only two ways that a person can be saved, when you think about it. Only two ways. Either it's conditional or it's unconditional. Either a man performs a condition, one or more, to achieve his salvation and go to heaven, or a man doesn't do a thing, and it's all of God. It's unconditional. There's no other choice. It's one or the other. Conditional or unconditional. Which is it? What does the Bible say to us on that? If we look around us, 99%, of the world's religious systems are conditional systems. They believe that a man has to perform some work, some deed, do something, some condition to achieve heaven, to have their sins forgiven, and to go to be with the Lord. Some require baptism. Some require church membership. Some require the sacraments. Some require that you have to keep part of Moses' law. And others, that we're familiar with, require a person to exercise their faith and accept Jesus Christ as their personal Savior in order to go to heaven. These are the various means that the world believes are required for a man to be saved. These are all the same. They're all the conditional means of salvation. You have to do something to be saved. But God's salvation is not such. God's salvation, as taught in the Bible, is unconditional. That God achieved salvation for us, and man doesn't do a thing. Isn't that exciting? If it's based on our doing it, can we do it perfectly? Can we do it well enough to get to heaven? But God saved us by himself alone. With that said, we want to hear this morning the seven proofs from the Bible that God's salvation is an unconditional salvation. First, we're going to have, and this is the order that we're going to come in, Adam Green, followed by Philip Crosby, followed by Jonathan Carnell, followed by Mark Crosby, followed by Nathan Crosby, followed by Daniel Crosby, and concluded by Chris Carnell. Adam, we're all ready. To save time this morning, I'm going to just uh, read the passages here instead of having you turn to them. Proof number one, man has no natural desire or ability to obey or please God for salvation. All right. Many of us have grown up and we're taught that man has a free will to decide whether or not he or she will accept Jesus into their life for salvation. Contrary to that belief, every person is conceived with a nature at war against God and the things of God. Human affections and desires are so ruined by Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden that men hate God and rebel against his commandments. Though man has not lost his faculties of reasoning, his ability to perceive and appreciate the things of God is so corrupted by sin that he resents and despises them. He has no affection or fear of God and is directed entirely by selfish ambitions towards sin. He will not and cannot humble himself and seek God, for his nature is totally corrupt and at war against God. It's impossible for him to obey or please God for eternal life, for he is dead spiritually and would never do it. 
we believe this truth because of what happened in the Garden of Eden. Yes. In Genesis two sixteen and seventeen says, and the Lord command Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Amen. God told Adam he would die. If he ate the fruit, he ate it anyway, and he died that day. <clears throat> so the question is, did he die or not? <clears throat> not physically, mm-hmm. because he lived for 930 years, uh, as it says in Genesis 5. So what did the Lord mean then when he said, In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. He meant that his soul would die <clears throat> in affection towards God, just as he had, just as he had been warned. Right. And immediately after sinning, Adam and Eve, they both died spiritually, immediately, at that day. Right. <clears throat> Genesis 3, 6 through 8, it says, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. They heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. They knew that they knew what sin was from that day forward. They knew they were naked, so they sewed those figs leaves together, and they hid when God came looking for them in the cool of the evening. And then Adam blamed Eve for his sin rather than repent and begged God for forgiveness. He was dead towards God and righteousness. Because of eating from the tree, knowledge of good and evil. Teaching that man can choose to believe or obey God is the same lie Satan told Eve. Though God promised death for eating the fruit, Satan told Eve she would not die. That's right. But they both died that day, and men are still spiritually dead today. Right. It's a lie from the devil to teach that man is alive and able to choose God by his free will. He's spiritually dead towards God, and you must start with that truth whenever you want to discuss salvation with someone. It's the foundation for all the others. If a man does not believe that he's spiritually dead and cannot obey God or please God without the Lord regenerating him, then you can't go any further with conversion. Adam beget children like himself, spiritually dead children. Genesis 5.3. And so we are all... Spiritually dead by natural conception. Romans five, twelve and 14 says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Right. Verse 14, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. We may be alive physically, but our souls are dead towards God and instinctively seek sin and obey Satan. Right. Ephesians 2.2, 2, where in the times past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. We are at enmity against God. We will not seek God, and we do not fear God in our natural being. Right. Romans three ten through 12, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Right. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone. 
out of the way. They are together, become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Amen. Verse 18 says there's no fear of God before their eyes. That's right. We will not and cannot please God in our carnal state. Romans 8, 7 and 8. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Right. And we cannot see His kingdom or hear His words. John 3 says that only those that are born again will be able to see the kingdom of God. In verse 47 of John chapter 8, He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God. The things of God, even presented by the Holy Spirit, are foolish to our depraved minds. We cannot discern or know them, and we will not receive them as natural man. 1 Corinthians 2.14 specifically says, The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Right. Man naturally hates God and fights against his spirit. Galatians 5.17 For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary, the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. Right. Psalm 10.4 says, The wicked, through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God, and God is not in all his thoughts. Right. Many men do not even have faith. Second Thessalonians 3, 2, at the very end of that verse, says, For all men have not faith. Right. Rehabilitation will not improve man's desirability. Isaiah 26, 10, Let favor be shown unto the wicked, yet will he not learn righteousness. Luke 16, 31 says, Even if Moses rose from the dead, the wicked will not even hear him. Beautiful. They will not hear because they're spiritually dead. Rehab only works for the living. The man is dead. He doesn't need therapy. He needs life. He doesn't need a medication. He needs resurrection. He doesn't need a doctor. He needs a creator to say, live. We need to be quickened or made alive, as Ephesians 2 says. When planning salvation, God saw man's lack of desire and ability. He looked down to heaven, from heaven, to see if any understood or desired him, but he found none. As As Psalm 14, Romans 3 says, as I just read. So he designed salvation without conditions, and this is proof number one that no man can perform any to save himself. Amen. We're going to look at the second proof of salvation. This is that God denies man's will or his efforts in salvation. Let me give you a summary, and then I'm going to go into a little more details, okay? So the summary of this topic would be that the Bible clearly rejects man's decisions or actions in obtaining eternal life. God gives salvation as a free gift without any conditions, and it is His determinate counsel that sought that before the world began. In order for salvation by grace, man cannot have any role in it, or grace would not be grace. Man's will and efforts are totally excluded. We all want to put them in there, but they're totally excluded. We do not make a decision for Jesus or work out our salvation. He made a decision for us before the world began. Not only go into a little more of a basic understanding that maybe the younger, the younger people in here can understand. I just went up and looked at the definitions of unconditional and salvation. Unconditional means not limited in any way. Complete and absolute. That's a pretty good definition for what we're looking at here. Salvation, deliverance from the power and effects of sin. 
So let's combine those two definitions and see what we get. We get complete and absolute deliverance from the power and effects of sin that is not limited in any way. Limited meaning man has something to do to get salvation. That is not the case. Now let's look at a few points from the Bible, the King James Bible. If you're looking at another version, you might not get some of these verses, or they'll be uh, you know, shortened to, to fit their, their things they need to do. First, God plainly denies man's will in salvation. The following two verses should be enough for any Bible-believing Christian to understand these points. But there's more. Let's go through the first two. Romans 9.16 So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Amen. Right here, it takes out the will of man and the action of man. In this one little verse, and then at the end it says, it's not man, it's God that showeth mercy. The reason I really enjoyed this verse is it's stuck right between two examples of God's will in our lives. In verse 15, God's telling Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. That's not saying, hey Moses, what do you think? What's your will? Do you want to, do you want to accept me today? No, he says, I will have mercy on who I will have mercy. Right. And then in verse 17, he's telling Pharaoh, I raised you up for my own purpose. Amen. He said, you didn't raise yourself up. I did. And we get this verse right in the middle saying, there's nothing we can do to get salvation. It's all of God. Right. Second verse on this point, John 1, verses 12 through 13. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, right. which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Amen. See, verse 13, a lot, some denominations will take this, this uh, te- verse out and try to use it for their own agenda. There's a problem. Verse 13 doesn't end with a sentence. You have to complete the, the thought here and go to verse 14. I just read both of the verses. So if you take 13 by itself, you can say, oh yeah, you know, if we receive him, we get the power to be the sons of God, and we'll stop. No, you can't stop at that. You have to complete the verse and the thought. And then by completing that with verse 13, you say, which were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, your family, or the will of man, your own will, but it's all of God. Amen. That includes verse 12. It's just amazing to me that some people will pick their little verses out, even if they're part of a thought or part of another sentence, and just pluck them out for their own agenda. That's not the case here. This is all going back to the glory of God. Right. Next point. God also clearly denies man's works in salvation. We just went over man's will. Now we're going to go over man's work. If we have anything to do with our salvation, we could become prideful and boastful, saying, you know, I did this for my salvation, or I'm going to do that for my salvation. God rejects all that. Right. Second Timothy 1.9, Who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Wow. Yes. I mean, that's pretty simple, I think. Right there is explaining it. This clearly shows our salvation is according to His, meaning God's grace, right. and not our works. Amen. This can be difficult for some to believe. Most, like Paul said earlier, 99% don't believe this. They want to have something to do with their salvation. Because some people can feel helpless. I can't do anything for my salvation. We love it. We love it here because we know that if it was up to us, we would all be wretched sinners and have no hope. But it's up to God, and we do have hope. Romans 9.11 
For the children, being yet, being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of Him that calleth. Yeah. Amen. This surrounding this verse is the um, examples of Jacob and Esau. In verse thirteen, it says, "As it is, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated." So from this, from this passage and from the surrounding verses, we understand that it's not whether you do good or evil, the works don't matter. We're going to see later that works are a proof, but in this context, the work is not what gets you into heaven. It's right. according to His good purpose. Right. <clears throat> Let's go to the next point. God saves man while they are dead in sins. I thought this was a little easier to understand because if you're dead in sins... You can't do anything to get salvation. You're dead. You have no action or will. You can't do anything about it. By nature, we are not willing or working towards our salvation. It is only through the that Jesus Christ that we have any hope of that salvation. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I like that verse. Amen. We earn death by a representative Adam, and we earn death every day by the sins that we commit. So we can't be going to God asking for salvation with sin in our lives and have a representative sin for us. Romans 5.18, Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift, came upon all men unto justification of life. This is just another verse showing that we were condemned we, we had nothing to look forward to. We, we didn't have anything. And then it says, the righteousness of one, the one right. being Jesus Christ, a free gift. Right. A free gift came to us. I don't know how much better you can get. I wouldn't want anything to do, have to do to get into heaven, but I would want that free gift of Jesus right. Christ dying for me. Right. Last point. Only God's will and not men's will is needed in giving eternal life. God's glorious will is altogether sovereign, and man can do more, no more than direct it than he can direct the wind. Right. To steal this is taking away from God's power and it's blasphemy. That's right. mm-hmm. God's mercy and predestinating purpose are based on his own will and not the will of man. Right. Right. Ephesians 1.5, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the pleasure of his good will. Yeah. Amen. This verse plainly states God's will and God's pleasure and does not say anything about man's will. Many people believe faith and works are needed to obtain salvation. Those are only proofs of salvation. They have nothing to do with us getting into heaven or our eternal salvation. John 5.21 For as the Father raised up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom He will. Whom He will. That doesn't say whom you will or whom I will. It says whom He will, meaning Jesus Christ. It's, It's funny, I... Not funny, but I've been going through all these verses, and I'm sitting there thinking, I gotta find man's will in here somewhere. But but I don't. All I find is God's His good pleasure, His grace, right. His purpose, His redeeming love. Those are all the words I can find. It's nothing about well, God put this out there for us to try to do. Nope, that's not there. Can't find it. Read the whole Bible. Not in there. It's all about God's will. Amen. And God denies man's works and faith. So in conclusion, if we fully understand unconditional salvation, we will come to love Him more because we know that it is all of God and nothing that we can do. Right. 
It is not some decision that we're going to make in writing the, the leaf of our Bibles. It's not our baptism. It's nothing we did. It's all of God's grace. Amen. So all praise to God who ordained His children to eternal life before the world became, because without Him, we are dead in trespasses and sins. That's right. Amen. Please turn with me to Romans chapter 3. We come to the third proof that salvation is by unconditional election. And this point is that faith and works are put in Scripture as evidences and and proof of a salvation that's already been accomplished in a man rather than conditions to accomplish salvation. So this is a bit of a different angle than the first two proofs, but we have overlap here. And I'm opening you to Romans chapter 3 because I want you to see verses 10 through 18. And I don't want you to forget that because this is point number one. If we don't forget that man is dead, then it's much easier to accept the rest of these points and see what the scriptures are telling us. We see statements here in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They're all gone out of the way. On down to there is no fear of God before their eyes. So this point is a bit different because we have faith and works. We have them, and we see faith and sincere works and a desire to please God and others. Where did it come from? Did it accomplish their salvation, or is it a product of their salvation? What do the scriptures say? I have a few groups of verses here that I'm going to read to you because we want to see what the scriptures say on this point. First, I have a group of verses that address whether works are a condition or the ability to exercise works are a product of salvation. Here's a point. Part of God's purpose for saving men was so that they could and would perform good works. Mm -hmm. I'll read these verses to you. Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Titus 2.14, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Another point, if a man loves the brethren, it is because he is born again. 1 John 3.14, we know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. He that loveth not, knoweth not God, for God is love. So we see that regeneration, or being born again, is necessary to be able to love the brother, which is a commandment. It is a good work. Here's some verses that address faith. Acknowledging Jesus as the Lord is only by the Holy Ghost. It's not in order to get the Holy Ghost. According to 1 Corinthians 12, 3, Wherefore I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed, and that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord, but by the Holy Ghost. Another point. We read that there there is no fear before their eyes. Faith, or fear of God, sorry, requires faith. If a man fears God, God put his fear in his heart. According to Jeremiah 32, 39, and 40, And I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever, for the good of them and of their children after them. 
And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts that they shall not depart from me. Amen. The ability to know God is a product of having been given eternal life. How can you have faith in God without knowing him? John seventeen two and 3, As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Amen. If anyone believes on Jesus, they have been passed from death unto life. That is, they have been born again. John 5:24 Verily verily I say unto you that he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation but is passed from death unto life that is has been passed from death unto life Also 1 John 5:1a Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God Right Another point, understanding and believing God's word requires God's prior work of salvation. John 8, 47 says this very clearly. He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God. We are told by some that regeneration is by the preaching of the gospel. But this verse says the opposite. The cause and effect relationship is in the opposite direction of what is commonly believed on that point. If... We are of God, that is, we have been born again, and we are saved. That is the only way that we have any interest in hearing God's words. Amen. Another point on this, in this section of faith, any care or love of God's kingdom on earth proves a man is born again. John 3, 3, Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Here are a few verses that address both faith and works. Pleasing God is impossible in the flesh, as we've already heard, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Romans 8, 7 and 8. If a man works righteousness at all, it is because he is born of God. 1 John 5, 29. I'm sorry, 2, 29. If you know that he is righteous, that is, God is righteous, you know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. So we see through this collection of verses that any way that a man could exercise faith or have good works that please God is because a new creature has already been created inside of him. May the Lord bless us to bring forth fruit. Amen. Do we have a powerful Savior? Amen. Was he powerful enough to accomplish our salvation by himself? Amen. Did he finish his work? Yes. Did he do all that the Father commanded him to do? Right. Then why do so many Christians or the Christian world believe that man has to help God save himself? Why does man need to receive the free gift that Jesus made available? Why do they want you to do something in order to be saved if Jesus Christ accomplished salvation for us. Proof number four is that Jesus saves by himself without any human cooperation. My first point is that Jesus saved in the same manner that Adam condemned us. If you think about it, 
Did you have to accept Adam as your personal sin representative? Did you have to accept Adam's sin for yourself? Or were you condemned already, as we heard in point number one? Before you were born, you were already condemned. Jesus Christ's singular obedience made the elect righteous, just as Adam's singular disobedience made mankind sinners. Romans 5, 18 and 19. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all to condemnation. That's Adam. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. My next point. Jesus Christ purged our sins by himself. Hebrews 1.3 says, Who, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Here Paul states that Jesus Christ by himself purged our sins. No one else did anything or helped him. My next point. All in Christ shall live and receive salvation. Jesus Christ's salvation was effective. John 6.39 states that this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. That's right. Jesus Christ's salvation was not only by himself, but it was effective by himself for right. us. Jesus Christ did not die to make salvation possible, as is believed by the university that I graduated from. He died to make our salvation final. Amen. John 19.30, Jesus states that it is finished. Amen. Now, I have a question. What was he talking about? <laughs> was he talking about the vinegar that he had just received? <laughs> that he had finished all of it? No. Was he talking about his life? That his life was finished because then he gave up the ghost? Again, I think no. Jesus was referring to the work that God had given him to do. His perfect, sinless life and his substitutionary death was finished. He had done the work. It's over. Now, I found this interesting. I did a little reading about the Mass, and I want to understand what exactly it was. And I came across this quote by, by a priest. It says, the, the Mass is the renewal and perpetuation of the sacrifice of the cross in the sense that it offers a new Jesus Christ to God. So each week, Jesus Christ is re-offered to God. But if, if I remember correctly, I think in Hebrews 10.14 it says, For by one offering Amen. he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Right. Jesus Christ doesn't need to be offered again. He did it one time, and it's over. Right. The Father was pleased. To, okay, and another point. If we add anything to his finished work, we destroy the whole message of the gospel. That's right. We take away from Jesus Christ's salvation if we have to add our conditions for salvation in order to accomplish that salvation. Right. Galatians 2.21 says, or Paul states, I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, works, then Christ is dead in vain. So if I have to add to Jesus Christ's finished work, I pretty much, Jesus Christ didn't do anything for me. He just made it possible. I saved myself. Next point. No man can or was able to appease the Father's righteous judgment except for the man Christ Jesus. 
Revelation 5, 4, John says, And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, or Jesus Christ, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. By giving Jesus Christ the total credit for salvation, we bring all glory to him. Man takes no part in his glory. Revelation 5, 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. All glory is given to Jesus Christ because he accomplished our salvation by himself. All glory to God. Seven proofs of unconditional salvation. Proof number five. The gospel and its ordinances were never intended to give eternal life. We need to remember that this is number five, which means there was a one, two, three, and four, and there's going to be a six and seven. These work together. They build on top of each other, and they interwove themselves to make the seven proofs. To use just one can be very dangerous, because if you were ever in a discussion they will switch to one of the other ones that you should have established ahead of time. If you can remember that man is dead, number five becomes very plain and easy to defend. So remember that this is number five. Is this important? I say yes. Man has always wanted to have salvation in their own hands. From the beginning of time, To our present day, they want to know that they can affect whether they're going to heaven or not. We want to affect whether we're going to heaven or not in our flesh. It's natural. In the Old Testament, they had the brass serpent. In the Old Testament, they said things like, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, because they wanted to know that they could affect their salvation. They've created conditions. They've created sacraments. They've created ordinances. They've created a myriad of different ways to give themselves some assurance of their salvation. This is a fundamental aspect of our religion. Not only the seven proofs of unconditional salvation, but how we believe we get to heaven and how we can refute what everybody else believes about how they feel they're going to be getting themselves into heaven. This sets us apart from people in our own city. It sets us apart from those that call themselves Christians. The Christian world believes the gospel, this Bible, what's in it, by being given to an individual, allows them into heaven. They believe that if you were to be baptized, that changes your place in heaven. That allows you a reservation in that great day of judgment because you were baptized. In a few moments, I hope to convince you that they are both wrong, and it's obvious if you will use the Word of God. Is there really an argument here? Or are we playing with straw men? No, this is a very real. The world out there believes these things. And they will fight to the death, as we heard earlier, 
And as we've been hearing for the last 18 weeks, they will fight to the death for these things. Baptism getting you into heaven will put you at the stake many years ago and could one day put you in a situation where you're going to have to defend the Word of God to the chagrin of people around you. It is very important. Don't discount the importance of it because everybody else believes it. That doesn't mean that what we believe isn't important. What do they believe? So they use terms like gospel regeneration and baptismal regeneration. And talking with my children, the glassy look they got when I used those terms was a telling. So I ask you, do you know what those words mean? Let me break it down for you. If you hear the gospel, are you going to heaven? And if you get baptized, are you going to heaven? That's what baptismal regeneration and gospel regeneration means. Let's not muddy the waters and confuse things too much. Hearing the gospel. Turn with me to Luke 1, and I want to show you one of my favorite verses on what the gospel is and what it should be to us. So Luke chapter 1, we know this as one of the gospels, and here's what Luke says he is doing by writing this. Luke 1, starting at verse 1, let these words tell you what this book you have in your laps is for. For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. Luke is writing this to explain things that had happened, not to give life to anybody, but to show them most assuredly those things that had already come to pass. 2 Timothy 111. 2 Timothy 111, and I want you to get two words. Two words out of this passage. 2 Timothy 111 reads, Paul saying, Whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles. And in verse 10, teaching what he is pre- going off of what he is preaching, verse 10 states, but is now made manifest by the peering of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Paul didn't bring life and immortality. He brought it to light. He explained it. He showed it. He shed light on the matter to give his the people that he was preaching to, the Gentiles, a knowledge of what Jesus Christ had done. 1 Corinthians 2, 13 and 14. The comment was made that if you are dead, what good is medicine going to do for you? They believe that the gospel is a medicine. It's a salve. It's a healing power. But if you're dead, what good is a healing power? Healing power only works to those that are sick. But we're dead. So here's what the Apostle Paul also made mention of these things. 1 Corinthians 2, 13 and 14, when talking about the gospel and its effect, 
First Corinthians two thirteen and 14 says, Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. There is Paul's ministry. Verse 14, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. If you're dead, medicine's not going to help. It takes someone that is sick that the Lord has to save to give these things to make sense. So hearing the gospel does not save. Hearing the gospel brings life and immortality to light force about what we've already been saved from. Baptism. Does anybody believe that baptism actually saves you? Yes. Just about everybody believes that. Some of the largest denominations in our country and in other countries believe that you have to be baptized to receive eternal life. And they'll go to great lengths to make sure that everybody is baptized. So you have infant sprinkling to baptism for the dead. They've covered the whole gamut to make sure that all of their relatives are going to be in heaven when they die. This appeals to the flesh, but it's wrong. It comforts families, but it's wrong. And it takes away all of our trust in God for our salvation and His it-is-finished work. You're going to run into these things. If you profess the Lord Jesus Christ in your life and you want to explain to others the great things the Lord has done for you, you're going to run into these arguments. Be armed. Be prepared. Know these things. They're going to want to force you into their camp, into their corner. Don't let it happen. We are commanded to hold fast to our profession. You've been given another opportunity today to be excited about the things that we've been taught. Let us hold fast to them against that day. So now that we've been reminded that man cannot naturally obtain salvation from God, that God denies man's will in obtaining salvation, that faith and works are results of salvation and not conditions for it, that Jesus Christ by himself saves without human cooperation, and that the gospel and its ordinances were intended not to give eternal life, if the five previous proofs are correct, then there should be examples in the Bible of those that are saved without any conditions. And that is the sixth proof. The first example we want to look at is John the Baptist, who displayed the fruit of the Spirit mentioned in Galatians 5.22 by leaping for joy in his mother's womb when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, the mother of our Lord. This happened before he could have possibly fulfilled any conditions because he was full of the Holy Spirit according to Luke 1.15, which says, For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost even from his mother's womb. John the Baptist, by being filled with the Holy Spirit, showed proof that he was an elect child of God before he could have ever fulfilled any conditions. Another example is Cornelius from Acts chapter 10. He feared God, which unsaved men cannot do. He prayed and gave alms that were accepted in the sight of God. He did all this before he ever heard the gospel or was baptized. The apostle Peter mentions in Acts 10, 34 and 35, that God accepts those that fear him and work righteousness. Cornelius could not have done any of these sayings that we've just heard unless the Holy Spirit had already done a work. And that work occurred in Cornelius before he ever met Peter 
What conditions could Cornelius possibly have met before he even knew the gospel of Jesus Christ? The answer is none, and that he was already a saved man when Peter met him. Lot is an example of a different sort. All we read about him in the Old Testament are negatives, including pitching his tent towards Sodom and then moving into Sodom, not training his family in the fear of the Lord, proven by the fact that his sons-in-law thought he had gone crazy when he suggested they flee Sodom. And then he committed incest with two of his daughters. Sounds like a pretty bad guy overall. But we, even with all this, we read that he was a righteous soul, was vexed daily, and that he was a just man, according to Second Peter 2. Amen. We read nothing of Lot fulfilling any sort of conditions right. or doing anything, but this did not change God's eternal plan to save him unconditionally. Right. Right. Another example of one who didn't complete conditions for salvation was a rich young ruler whom Jesus loved. Jesus gave him some things to do, but he wouldn't pay the price, and he went away sorrowful, according to the account recorded in Mark ten seventeen through 27 However, the fact that Jesus loved him and that he went away sorrowful are two signs that he was an elect of God, even though he did not obey Jesus. Right. Another example, if you will, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This example is talking about the Israelites who came out of Egypt. And it's recorded in the first four verses. Please follow along as I read. Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and did all eat the same spiritual meat, and did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. If we compare this verse to John 6.54, where Jesus is recorded as saying, Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. We are convinced that these Israelites are a part of the elect of God. However, in verse 5 in 1 Corinthians 10 it says, But with many of them God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So perhaps their one condition they didn't even fulfill. But that did not change the fact that he'd already predestinated them to eternal life. They committed actions that were severe enough to cause the Lord to kill them. But this did not save them from getting saved because this is another example of the Lord saving unconditionally. Another generation of Israelites that had similar traits as the one that came out of Egypt are the ones the Apostle Paul mentions in Romans chapter 11, which we just recently covered in our study of Romans. And in Romans 11.28 reads, As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. But as touching election, they are beloved for the Father's sake. That's right. We don't have time to go into a refresher of why they were blinded. That was God's choice to blind the Jews to send the gospel to the Gentiles. These, in, these Israelites, though, were enemies of the gospel, and thus fulfilling no imaginary conditions for salvation. Right. Yet they are still beloved of the Father, and they were chosen based on His own good pleasure and not on a belief or a condition of belief in the gospel. Another example, and one that you can think about and has become kind of famous for Mr. Bruce Taylor, is what about babies? If there are conditions on salvation, then all babies and mentally unable people are going straight to hell because they can't do it. If we give some sort of age of accountability, then we are allowing for two separate salvations. And what blasphemy is that? But with our plan that the Lord has shown us of salvation that is completely controlled and are in His hands and through the sacrifice of His Son, 
all babies and others will be saved the exact same way that all of us are saved through God's unconditional grace. Amen. With the knowledge that salvation is purely unconditional and that salvation is only through the Lord's choice before the foundation of the world and the examples that I just mentioned, it must be remembered that the ones mentioned are the great exceptions. The primitive Baptists and much of the world will say that there is a lot of unconverted elect using the examples just mentioned. However, Deuteronomy 29.29 says, The secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. The Lord knows all them that are His, regardless of their outward actions. But it is not our place to speculate on if someone else is saved, if they show none of the eleven fruits of the Spirit mentioned in Galatians and Ephesians 5. The rule is the elect that elect persons will be giving all diligence to add to their faith, virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, and charity, as this is the evidence, not condition of salvation in someone's life, as mentioned in Second Peter. I hope you remember proof number six that there are examples in the Bible of those saved unconditionally. Amen. Proof number seven is that. Eternal life must be unconditional on the part of man because that is the only doctrine which gives God all the glory. God must get all the glory. Understanding this proof requires us to recognize an important aspect of God's nature. That is, God is jealous. This is so true that one of God's names is Jealous, with a capital J. Deuteronomy 4.24, For the Lord thy God is a consuming fire, even a jealous God. Exodus 34.14, For thou shalt worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Exodus 20. Verse 5, speaking of graven images, Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. Because God is jealous, he will not share the praise and glory rightly belonging only to himself. Isaiah 42, verse 8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another neither my praise to graven images. Isaiah 48, verse 11, For mine own sake, even for mine own sake, will I do it. For how should my name be polluted? And I will not give my glory unto another. Furthermore, he has designed salvation specifically to maximize his own glory and to eliminate any other potential object for glory, especially man. 1 Corinthians 1, we'll read several verses here, 26 through 31. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. 
and base things of the world, and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. God purposefully saved mostly the foolish, the weak, the base, rather than the mighty, wise, and noble, so that no one would be able to insinuate that their own abilities had anything to do with their salvation. Let's look at another passage. Ephesians 2, 4 through 9. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. According to this passage, God is going to show something in the ages to come. That is, the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. This display God is going to make specifically excludes any glorying or boasting from man. Other schemes of salvation require conditions on the part of man. Some require you to perform sacraments, usually seven or two, or ordinances, whereby grace is supposedly conveyed. Some require faith or a decision for Jesus as a precondition for receiving eternal life. All these schemes hinge on man's performance or obedience to some condition or requirement. But if man performs a condition in order to receive eternal life, then according to 1 Corinthians 1.29, flesh will be able to glory in God's presence. According to Ephesians 2.9, boasting will result. According to Romans 4.4, God would be in debt to anyone meeting conditions. People do not go to hell because they were poor decision makers. People do not get to heaven because they were good decision makers. If so, good decision makers would have something they could boast of. Those in hell are there for Adam's sin and their own sins. Those in heaven are sinners as well, but had their sins paid for by the Lord Jesus Christ by the design and purpose of God Almighty. This election was not based on any good found in in sinners or or any good that God foresaw in these sinners but only on God's pure mercy, grace, and choice. God designed salvation and accomplished it and secured it by himself without man performing any conditions. Because the Lord Jesus Christ truly, as we sing in the song, paid it all without any contribution from man, he alone gets all the praise, credit, and glory for the work of salvation. Let us ascribe to him all the praise, credit, and glory he deserves today. Amen. 
Thank you, brothers, for an excellent review of the seven proofs of unconditional salvation. We have a glorious salvation that God has designed for his own glory and honor. Man gets no glory, he gets it all. And we're very thankful for that. So we heard, proof number one, that man cannot naturally obey or please God. He's dead in sins. Proof number two, that God denies man's participation in salvation. Proof number three, that faith and works are the results of salvation, not the means to get salvation. Proof number four, that Jesus Christ saves by himself alone. Proof number five, the gospel and ordinances were not designed to save. Proof number six, the Bible has examples of men who were saved without meeting any conditions. And proof number seven, that only unconditional salvation gives God all the glory. Amen. Seven proofs from the Bible that salvation is unconditional and all of God without man's involvement at all. Right. Praise be to his name. Aren't you thankful? If we were, if it was up to us to make any choice toward God, we wouldn't ever make that choice. We all know that in our hearts, don't we? God saved us by His free gift, through grace, through Jesus Christ, by Himself alone.